Hello and welcome to The Scrum. It's a podcast we do here at WGBH News about politics and sometimes media from Beacon Hill to the Beltway. I'm Adam Riley. At the beginning of this year, Evan Felchuk was, for many people, the face at the front of the anti-Olympic movement in Massachusetts. Now, of course, Boston's Olympic bid is dead. So what's next for Felchuk and his political party, the United Independent Party? When a party gains traction on a single issue, what happens after that issue goes kaput? Here with me at the WGBH News Studios in Brighton to discuss this very issue is Peter Kadzis, the senior editor of WGBHnews.org. Hello, Peter. Comrade Riley, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Excellent. And of course, we're also joined by Evan Felchuk himself. Evan, thanks for being here. Thank you. The, the reason that we wanted you to come in, and thank you for making time to actually come in here, um, I was hoping to get a sense of how the party building process is going. I think I last spoke with you in person rather than on Twitter before the election. Uh-huh. Um, how has the project of building a new third party in Massachusetts uh, been going over the past almost uh, one year? It's been going great. We've been working very hard. We've got over 13,000 people now enrolled in the party. And remember, we've got to get to 40,000 by next November. So we're, we're on track to hit that goal. And what we've done since the election is, you know, we repurposed so much of our team to focus on party building. Uh, as many people remember, we really were in the forefront of the referendum effort about the Olympics, uh, which just showed the kind of thing that you can do if you've got a new party platform and structure in place. We can actually challenge a system that does not represent people and actually get a result out of it. That's without any elected officials. So, now, perhaps dumb question. How does one enroll in the party? When you go to register to vote, or if you're already a registered voter, you go and you can change your party. You get the form, although the state in July finally launched online voter registration. So one of your choices is to tick a box that says, I want to be in a particular party. Nowadays in Massachusetts, a majority of voters are what they call unenrolled. Uh, they're not in any party at all. Right. Uh, that matters in Massachusetts, especially with the presidential election coming up, because if a person wants to vote in the Democratic or Republican primaries, they've got to either be a Democrat or Republican or be unenrolled. So we tell people this all the time. We don't want them to be in a position where they say, oh, I meant to enroll with you guys. I just didn't realize that's what it meant. Uh, but it, it's striking you know, to be in a position where we've got, again, over 13,000 people as of the end of September that have already enrolled in the UIP. It, it says something about the need for what we're doing. Let me ask you about that 13,000 tally. It is impressive, especially when you think about what people might lose by enrolling, mm -hmm. the inability to, to vote in an upcoming presidential election year. But if I remember right, you had said you wanted to get to 50,000 by the end of this calendar year. Right. Has it been more difficult than you expected? It's been a little more difficult. Um, but I, I have to say I'm really thrilled with the results. And I think one of the things that happened is that we got really focused on this Olympics effort. This thing came, you know, in a lot of ways out of nowhere. And what became clear back in January was, you know what, we really needed to focus on this. We needed to be a voice for the voiceless. We needed to be the the people that would lead in a process to make sure that voters' voices were heard. And that was really a major part of our effort. Uh, but, you know, to be at, to be at 13,000, to be at 20,000, to be at 40,000, what matters is that we get to that number by November of next year. That's our, that's our huge goal. That's, that's the one that we're going to reach. And that's to maintain your party status. So you yep. have, just for, for listeners who might, uh, and, and I could, you know, take my own stab at explaining what you get when you get to 40,000. 
I'd probably screw up some of the details. And since you're the party builder, you should do it yourself anyway. What do you <laughs> I'm get? Happy by, to provide that what do you service. get by getting to forty thousand? We've got a system today where if you're a party, you get to raise money at higher levels, where you get better ballot access rules. There's the ability to support candidates, which is probably the biggest thing. If we're if you're not a party and I wanted to support you, Adam, running for office, you'd have to pay for everything we gave you. Voter lists, marketing, whatever. But as a party, I can give you that for free, which is, you would think that would be the way it works for everybody, but it isn't how it is in our system. So being a party is a big deal. We had to get 3% of the vote in last year's election to get party status. It only lasts for two years unless you get 1% of voters enrolled, which is the 40,000 figure mm -hmm. that I'm talking about. So we, we found a way to tunnel into this very broken system and to create a structure that allows us to support candidates and other people. So for instance, uh, one of our uh, candidates is a guy named Taylor DeSantis, who's running for city council out in Pittsfield. These are local races this year, obviously, because there's really not much in the way of, of state races. But we're, we're trying to show what, what happens if you actually have contested elections. What happens if you've got people that will speak truth in an environment where we see so much vague platitudes? How did you get hooked up with Taylor DeSantis? He worked on my campaign. He, was a, he started out as a volunteer, young guy, um, became the field director and then the political director of the party. He's been active in politics most of his life. And the what's going on in Pittsfield right now, and there's a lot happening out there that has to do with, with crime, with drugs. They just, they're about to lose the, one of their largest employers out in Pittsfield. There's a lot of challenges there. But to have a, a fresh young voice entering the system, he's going to do really, really well. Um, he's going to be one of the top vote getters in that race, and that's going to be that's going to be quite a statement. Now, will will you be recruiting candidates to run for the legislature for the House of Representatives and the Senate? That's right. That's our plan for next year is to be involved in those races. And you know, we it's interesting being a party. There's a lot of people that come to you and say, "Hey, I want to run," and they may may or may not be the right people. But we're we're looking at selected races in selected parts of the state where we know we can make an impact. What's the goal for how many people you want running in House and Senate races? We, we, it's not, we don't really look at it as a number. Um, we're not looking at it as there was an effort back, you know, 10 or so years ago when Governor Romney said he wanted to get like 100-something people running. That's the not, reform team. Yeah, that's not our model. We want really good people who could stand here with you and you say, that guy's cool, that's an interesting, or that woman's cool, that represents something interesting, and people who can win. That's, that's what it's about. You must have this honed pretty well by now, but, you know, repeat for the audience, what's the nub of your message, mm -hmm. you know? Um, be, because I do think a lot of people would associate, associate you with opposition to the Olympics, right. uh, which is a good thing in many quarters. Mm -hmm. But what's the nub of your message? We're, we're the alternative political party. You know, when people say, where's the party that's socially progressive and fiscally sensible? You know, where is it? That's what the United Independent Party is. So, uh, so much of that has to do with, let's just be real about whatever the topic might be. Let's take a, an honest position that's not driven by ideology and just treat voters like adults. You know, when, when you watch what's happening in the presidential election, which in a lot of ways is, is, a, is a wonderful advertisement for the need for a new party in our country, it's, you know, the people that are doing well, like Bernie Sanders and also Donald Trump, are, are speaking to that same dissatisfaction. You know, they're, they're talking in ways that you could think that Trump is saying stuff that's, that's outrageous, and, and he is. Um, you know, Sanders, the, the fact that the Democrats are having an argument with whether people are capitalists or not is, is kind of insane in, in the 21st century. <laughs> but it's, it, you say, where is the place to go? Where can I go just to have a normal adult conversation in politics? As you frame it that way, it sounds to me 
more like a, a statement of what you're not than a statement of what you are. But maybe I'm not doing justice to the description that you just provided. Um, if you run through that description, yep. if you say we're the party of, of uh, you know, social liberalism and fiscal sensibility, and someone says to you, you know, I, uh, I'm an independent, but I, or I'm unenrolled, but I voted for Governor Baker because uh -huh. I saw him as socially pretty liberal and sure. fiscally uh, pretty responsible. What do you follow up with? Well, that's, that's one person, and there's no question that the party that he's in doesn't share those values. No question about it. Um, there's a lot of money that went to support Governor Baker that came from the National Republican Party. And, of course, there's strings always attached with that. So the, the issue for voters who are not enrolled is to say, what are we going to do? Because parties have an, an outsized influence over our political process. If you say, hey, I just want to vote for the person, not for the party, you never get the chance to do that because without a party, that person never shows up to run. I've met so many people that would be awesome candidates, but they went and they tried to climb their way through whatever the process was in the old parties. And they said, this isn't for me. This isn't for me. So we're losing out on that. Um, in, our, in our politics in America today, in a world where every industry has been disrupted in some way or another by something new, politics hasn't happened yet. And, and that fundamentally is what we're building. Let's switch a little bit from politics. I, I think I see where Adam was going and talk about policy. You know, if your party were up and running with, say, a half dozen people in the legislature in various positions, what would your party's approach be to, say, charter schools where mm -hmm. there is a, a debate? about to rage yep. yet again on that subject. Yeah, and I mean, I talked about a lot of these issues when I was a candidate for governor. And, and you know, my view on charter schools, this is obviously something in the news right now, is that we have an educational system that's horribly underfunded. I got three kids in the public schools, and we live in a nice town where there is money. But this is not the case in so many of other places around the state. And even we face budget issues. So the idea that we'd say, let's divert public money to private organizations in order to support these schools is a problem. And we need to be, we need to be confronting that. With that said, there are people that are in schools that aren't serving them well and would like to have an alternative. So what do we do? Well, for starters, we got to be real about the fact that it, there's probably going to be a need for a couple billion dollars of new money to put into our educational system. And one of the challenges we have in our politics today is that you'll have Republicans that say no taxes and Democrats that say no reform to anything. We need to do both. It's the same problem with the T. The $7 billion state of good repair problem does not get fixed by, you know, a couple of weeks ago they were talking about doing liquor ads on the T. And I don't even know if I care about them putting liquor ads on the T. But in any event, it's $1.4 million. So go get that money. But if $1.4 million doesn't even begin. Yeah, that right. doesn't go too far. You know, and so where do we get the money? And how do we have an honest conversation with people and say, listen, you can't have everything that you want in the structure that's been set up today. Let's have grown-ups who are willing to take on these challenges. Well, talk a little bit more about that approach in the context of the T, if you can. Mm -hmm. um, imagine that you had won the governor's election a year ago, and you were leading the charge for new revenue and reform with yep. the T. Um, for starters... How much new money would you be looking for in the system? And what would you be telling people, I'm sorry, you're not going to get as much as you might like it? Well, the biggest place to find money right now, other than getting rid of inefficiencies and all the stuff that everybody always talks about, waste, which is real. I mean, there's real money there, and I don't doubt that they're working on trying to remove that, are the huge tax breaks that go out to these really big companies. So you, you look at the companies like Liberty Mutual and Vertex and these other ones that get huge amounts of large S from the state. I'm talking about billions of dollars. They... They should be second in line to kids. They should be second in line to the needs of the public transit system. So we should be undoing a lot of that. 
And then we also need to figure out ways to, to raise some taxes in ways that will direct that money into the T so it doesn't end up off in the general fund not being worked that way. Let me play devil's advocate with the tax breaks. Uh-huh. Um, I, I agree with you personally, but EMC has just been or is now in the process of being acquired by Dell. Everyone on Beacon Hill or many people on Beacon Hill are nervous about job losses, which I can understand. Um, I don't know if they realize that EMC and Dell are very different companies, um, but wouldn't the mood on Beacon Hill at the present moment be, who let's give someone a tax break, you know, to keep the jobs in Boston? It's, I'm in Massachusetts. I'm oversimplifying, yeah. but... You know, people in politics, they, they end up being suckers when it comes to these big companies. You know, I'm a business person. You know, taxes matter, but the cost of doing business is, is the biggest issue. And companies like Dell and EMC, I mean, these are multi-billion dollar companies. They don't, they don't need tax breaks from the state. They will go, and I, I guess I don't blame them. They'll go to the legislature or to the people in government and say, hey, give us a tax break. IBM's coming to Cambridge, and they're getting a tax break to set up shop in Cambridge. IBM. IBM. Now, if you're a, a small startup business and your healthcare costs are really high, we're not really going to address that. If housing costs are high because we don't produce enough housing, if your kids are going to schools that you say they're not what they could be, eh, we will deal with that. But we better make sure that IBM gets a tax break. It's it, it's wrong. And, again, the, the, the people in business, they got a right to ask, but the people in government are being suckers when they fall for it. I don't want to belabor the T example too much, but just to flesh this out, and this is the only sort of case study I'll, I'll um, throw at you here, but... So when you talk about getting rid of the tax breaks for the companies that you're talking about, companies like that, and coming up with new tax revenues that could be steered to the T, just a ballpark figure, how much, say, new annual money do you think should be pushed in the T's direction? They need, I would say, at a minimum, $1 to $2 billion a year. Remember, they got a $7 billion state of good repair backlog. You can't do all that in one year. But after the winter that we just had last year, keep in mind what happened. So February was the catastrophe with the T. It took several months before we even had action taken around a control board and everything else like it. So we basically lost six months worth of time. You know, now they're starting to do some things. It has to do with a lot of reforms in the system, you know, absenteeism and all these things. That's, that's fine. But it doesn't address the fundamental issue. What to me is most striking about this is that this has been known for a couple decades. This isn't news. You know, this was talked about during the, the governor's race. There's not enough money in the public transit system. We have to decide if this is a priority or not. So we're seeing it play out now where we know the money needs to be spent. We know we got to figure out where to get it from, but we don't see action to do it because of the, I think, the fear around addressing the issue of where do we get the taxes for it. So let's say that uh, you find a way to get the T1 to $2 billion new dollars in revenue a year. What are some of the things that you, if you were governor, would be telling T riders, you know, I know you want this stuff. I know it's nice to have it, but we can't afford it right now. No, well, with the T, we have to have a system that actually works. So this isn't about having some pie in the sky, you know, monorail with Wi-Fi, you know, whatever. It's about making sure that the thing we have right now actually functions. So people, you know, if you follow the T on Twitter, what you get half the time is a tweet saying regular service has resumed. You know, you wonder when when regular service is ever happening. Um it's true. You know, it's, it is fundamentally about just making it work. It's about making it work. And we should be going to these companies. Again, back during the storms in February, that would have been a great time to sit down with companies like Liberty and, and these other big firms that are getting the big tax breaks and say, you guys, you know, you're benefiting from this 
public transit system, your workers are using it and weren't able to get to work. We need to restructure your deals, and we need money that's going to go into fixing the T. So just so I'm clear, sorry, Peter, would you no. imagine cutting back, say, the hours of operation for certain lines or eliminating certain bus routes? Um, because, and I, I may be misremembering your sort of prescription for yeah. how, to, how to fix this, but I seem to recall you saying we need more money and we need people to know that they can't get everything they want. Um, maybe I'm paraphrasing it Yeah, it's you're paraphrasing it slightly incorrectly because okay. it isn't about the, the public transit system. The T needs to be a major priority for our future. When you, you have to look at all these things together. So we don't build enough housing in Massachusetts. So it means that people can't afford to live here. We got an issue with health care costs that we can talk about. But transit-oriented housing is the future. We have no strategy to actually do that. You know, we're we're trying to do something with the green line extension, but that may never happen because of a money issue. The world's slowest subway, as yeah, I like to call very it. Very true. Yeah. Very true. One more. Let me allow me one more question about the T, um, and then we should move on to some other issues. But funding is clearly an issue for the MBTA. But um, Governor Baker seems to have hit on certainly a popular and to me rather commonsensical approach to say, look, I'm reluctant to give more money until we get a lot of internal things fixed. And one of those internal things is a, um, a more sensible working relationship with the public employee unions mm -hmm. there. How would your party approach that? Yeah, no, we need to, you know, they, they suspended the Pacheco law for that purpose. And I, I get that. It's not, it's not a wrong thing to want to do. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that we have a $7 billion state of good repair backlog. $7 billion. So we can renegotiate union deals, and, and we should. And we should make sure that the work environment is one in which taxpayers are getting a good value. But we need to fix the system. So it's easy, I think, politically to say, let's pick on an issue that gets people fired up. This absenteeism thing, I think, is the, the poster child for this. I think, Which I think is maybe a little over. A bit. Well, it came out, if I recall correctly, Commonwealth Magazine crunched yep. the numbers after uh, the Pioneer Institute put out some figures, and uh, they, they turned out to be a little bit overinflated. There were some scheduled absences involved yep. in those absenteeism. But it was numbers. also, when you looked at the charts that they put together, the, the money lost for absenteeism absolutely positively dwarfs the state of good repair Correct. backlog. Yeah. Not even close. Wait, dwarfs it or comes nowhere near. You can't even see right. it on the chart. You can't even see it. And that's the issue. So it's easy to go after the little stuff. But if you're really going to change something, you have to go after the big, hard things. Uh, let me ask you more broadly about the job you think Governor Baker has been doing over the past year. Where are you impressed, if anywhere, with decisions he's made or approaches he's taken? And where do you think, um, beyond perhaps the T, where do you think he's going about it wrong? Well, you know, one of the things that became very clear with what he's done is just how bad things were under the prior administration. And I'm talking about not just the T, but things like DCF. Um, oh, you read my mind. G you know, keep going. And, and, and you see it, and it's just, it's appalling, you know, that what was the sort of accepted level of service and behavior in the organization. It's almost as if no one cared. So um, that's been revealed pretty clearly. So I, I can have a lot of things that I say, listen, I think that the governor should be more aggressive, should be taking um, advantage of the position that he's in to do the things that need to be done. But I, but I think one of the really important things we need to see is that our government really has not been accountable to us for a long time. And certainly in the case of DCF, lives have been lost. How, let's dig into DCF a bit. Mm. Um, I, 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 I think, um, the Baker administration, maybe I'm not an expert in this area, but we have to try something new. And the idea Baker seems to be pursuing in part is to, um, almost separate the department 
they're not doing this administratively into, you know, families and children. And this emphasis on keeping families together at almost any cost seems sure. to be going by the wayside. But again, if you were governor, what's the what would be your intellectual roadmap yeah. for dealing with this intractable problem? To me, leadership is about being able to set that high-level goal and say, look, no child in Massachusetts should die or be harmed in the state's care. That's the starting point. You know, we can get down into the details of do you break it up into two agencies who change some of our philosophy, but that has to be the very clear message that's sent. And once you, once you start with that, then it becomes a lot easier to say, okay, what are the things that need to be done? But the marching orders need to be clear. And I think one of the problems with what I would describe as, as timid leadership is that it, it gravitate towards the, the wonky details as opposed to being able to say, we got to make a strong statement here. And yeah, look, it's, it is a, it's a horrible thing. But in reality, on earth, people, kids get abused, they get hurt, they may die, they may die at the hands of their parents, it may happen in the course of being supervised by the state. But we have to at least start with the point where we can at least say that, have it understood by everybody, and make sure that our organization is moving in that direction. That the goal is no one under state supervision is going to lose right. their life. That's but right. But do, do you think that um, the Baker administration is being too timid in its approach to DCF? Well, when you look again, leadership should be about being able to make those strong statements. And I think what they do is they get into the wonky details of it. And I get it. You know, the. Baker is, is a smart guy who likes those level of detail. He really gets into those level of detail. But it doesn't provide inspiring confidence to the public that the government's got this. You know, they're going to fix it. But, but not to be hectoring, but to push you on this point, I mean, I, I agree with your statement. Yep. Uh, it's pretty darn hard not to. But if someone were to die 10 days later after making that statement – doesn't that put whoever made that? Doesn't that put the governor in just an awful position? It, life is tough, and leadership is hard. You know, with the T, I think was, and I'm not trying to go back to the T, but it's a really no. great example of what goes wrong. I mean, Beverly Scott, who the governor didn't speak to during the course of this unfolding. A disaster with the T should have been just terminated, and they should have terminated all the people on the board. I know that the governor doesn't necessarily have the authority to do it, but I would think that a governor could stand out there and say, okay, these people here were appointed by others. I want you all to resign because this happened on your watch, and there are millions of people that couldn't get to work. And you could say you're not responsible. You could say you don't have to resign, but that's a great. Little, a little Trumpism, perhaps. <laughs> Maybe. But it's, but it's also, to me, it's, it's leadership in these cases. You don't need to be so crazy in a case like this one. It's just sort of common sense. So the need to go and say, well, we got to pass legislation. we got to do this in a certain way. It, it doesn't do anything for the millions of people who have been hurt by what happened with the T. All right. And just one more follow-up on DCF, not mm -hmm. to make you and our, our listeners yo-yo around too much, but... You um, smart listeners, Adam, after they can the, handle this. I, I love it. Good uh, career move. <laughs> totally. Um, after making that strong statement, we want no child who's being yep. supervised by the state to die under our watch. Is there anything that then, were you governor, you would do administratively uh, or technically to try to make sure that that goal can in fact be realized. You have to put leaders in charge who know how to actually get things done and will provide confidence to the public. You know, this is so much to me about what leadership is about. So put someone in place who knows how to do this, but they also need to be someone who can go out there and say, this will be dealt with. We've got this. We're going to handle this from here. 
and it's a missing piece. I mean, it, it happens in our in our politics, not just here in Massachusetts. This is a national problem. I think uh, in business, many times we see leaders like that who do things, who can save companies and turn them around. Um, but you know, we don't see it as much as we should in our government. So naturally, the question that I want to ask now is if you're going to run for governor again. But before I ask you that question, mm-hmm. um, just to hearken back briefly to the Olympics for a moment, did the fact that that issue sort of landed in your lap uh, unexpectedly as you were looking to build the UIP, did your engagement with that issue change in any way what the UIP is about? Or are you the same party today that you would have been if the Olympics had not even been a conversation That's an interesting question. Uh, what struck me about it in December, and I actually wrote a, an op-ed about this in December of last year, I said, this is one of the most underreported stories of 2014, was the fact that they had submitted a bid. And it, it struck me that it's exactly why we created the UIP. You had a group of insiders who were trying to use the government to make money for themselves, and they weren't really interested in what the public had to say about it. I think as we saw as it unfolded, they actually had a great deal of disdain for the public. And so the question was, are we going to sit here and say, well, it is what it is. These people are important and powerful. The fix is in. Yeah, the fix is in. It's the same thing that always happens. Are we going to do something about it? You know, it's interesting. Right, this was before then, but right when the Olympics were beginning to bubble up, I ran into Liam on... um, This is Liam Kerr? Liam Kerr on on Beacon Street. Of the group, and I want to make sure I get it right, No Boston Olympics, not No Boston 2024. But this was before that group was uh, even a twinkle in his eye, and he said to me, watch the Olympics. This is going to become the overwhelming, most important issue of the state. Well, I mean, he was right. And and those, you know, the, the people that tried to push this on us completely misread the public. They completely misunderstood that people actually want to be treated like adults. They decided we could just do what we want. What was amazing to me was right towards the end, they released the last bit of documents that they hadn't revealed to the public yet. And you remember they were claiming, we want a referendum just like this United Independent Party does, which was a lie. Um, but in the documents, what they told the USOC was, if there's a referendum, we'll fight it every step of the way. That's including right. filing lawsuits if we have to. And, and this was the, the really important part, if it wins, we'll go to the legislature to have it overturned. Mm-hmm. So their feelings about the public were... We don't want these people that to vote. We don't want these people to have their opinion heard because we've got all the people we need to have. So what is really important about the Olympics, the lesson from it, and it's something that I tell people all the time is there is so much of an effort to rewrite history. You know, we've heard Marty Walsh, the, the, you know, he suddenly is seen as the guy who he refused to sign the guarantee. He was the biggest cheerleader for this. And when he came out to say, I, you know, I'm not going to sign this, it was already dead. And he knew it was already dead, I think, at the time that he did that. I refuse to mortgage the future of the city away. I refuse to put Boston on the hook for overruns. And I refuse to commit to signing a guarantee that uses taxpayers' dollars to pay for the Olympics. There you read my mind. I was going to ask you if you think that narrowed the sound. Clearly. I mean, you know, hastily announced press conference where he says, if I have to sign this today, we're not a bidder. Well, no one was forcing him to sign it today. But clearly, he must have gotten a call or something from someone saying, by the way, we're about to announce this. So let me ask you, and by the way, I have a very similar reading on on Walsh's spinning of that press conference and the broader Olympics issue to yours. If he, in fact, knew that the bid was dead before he held the presser, why do you think so many members of the public, I think, and also members of the media have bought the idea 
that he killed the bid with that press conference. Yeah. I, I actually see it more as a media thing because I don't hear it so much from members of the public. Members of the public are so skeptical of this the, whole the, thing. The, the public doesn't think in those terms. They don't care in that way. Yeah. I, I can honestly say I don't know. I know almost no one who was in favor of the Olympics. Some people were bitterly opposed. Some just didn't think it was a good idea. But Peter, you don't think those, uh, pardon me, um, but Peter, you don't think those people believe that Marty Walsh ended the bid with that press conference? Oh, I don't, the people I'm talking about, there are 26 people, 13 couples that I Your stay focus in touch group, with. Yes. My private focus oh. group. None, none of them bought it yep. or none of them cared. I mean, it's just yeah. like, it's not here, great. All right, I think so if, right. It's, if it's not the public, why are so many of us in the media willing to buy that narrative? Well, I can't speak for you guys, but I do think speak what happens- Speak for our general profession. I, this is what Feel I think free. happens. I think there is a, there's a cultural theme these days in the press around everybody trying to be kind of armchair political consultants, and everyone's trying to analyze the ups and downs. Did they do it right? Did they handle it right? Was it a smart political move to have the Brattle Group do this you know, or not? And that's all that matters. And for people in the public, they're like, I don't care about the smartness Correct. of the political move. I just, I don't understand why my school doesn't have enough money or why I had to wait for an hour on the platform and then the train was canceled. So that's the disconnect that's there. And I have to say, it's, a, it's disturbing when you think about our democracy. So if our government is that disconnected from the people, it does not bode well. And, and the press has a really important role to play in this and to ask these hard questions and to say, yeah, Marty, I get it. I know what you did. Let's, let's level with each other here. Like, we're smart. You're smart. Let's, let's level with each other about, about what happened. All right. One more lingering question for me. Um, are you guys different than you would have been if you hadn't been focused on the Olympics? I mean, among other things, when you were looking ahead to a referendum, pushing for yep. a referendum, you made common cause with the activists who had opposed yeah. the gas tax, the automatic gas tax increase. Did that, for example, push the UIP to the right at all? It didn't. And this is what was cool about that. So, you know, we, we formed an alliance with the people that were against the gas tax. I was in favor of the indexing of the gas tax. And it was fascinating. Everybody talks about we need to see more bipartisanship. Well, here we were doing it. And there were people that were UIP members said, what are you working with those guys for? And there were people from the Tea Party groups that were saying, why are you working with that UIP guy? And that was kind of interesting. But it didn't matter. They didn't become more progressive and we didn't change who we are. But if you listen to any one of them talking, if you brought any one of them in here to talk about the Olympics, they would say the same thing. That's important. You know, it was just, it was honest, it was real. And the ability to form common cause like that was a big deal. I do think one of the, the fascinating things that did not happen was that there were not other people who are willing to step up in the legislature to come out and say, yeah, we feel the same way. You know, the House and the Senate had a chance to vote on our referendum. We had uh, a rep and a senator introduced our referendum as a bill, and it got Remind killed. me and the listeners, and Peter, uh, who were the rep and senator who introduced it? Was, it was uh, Jeff Deal in the House, and it was uh, Bob Headland in the Senate. And what they, what they introduced was essentially the language of our referendum, which said no tax money for the Olympics. So in the House, it got killed on a voice vote. So we have no idea how people voted. We actually had some of our team call every rep to find out how they voted on this. We didn't really get good answers from many of them. Um, a lot of them weren't there. By the way, Peter, when you were asking about what would we be doing if we had UIP members in the legislature, we would be pushing for recorded votes on everything. You know, no more of this behind right. closed doors maneuvering. You know, our democracy is supposed to be for everybody. Um, and in the Senate, they actually had a vote on it where it lost. Um, it was 
it was closer than it was obviously in the House, but we didn't have a list. I think it was 22 to, to 17 um, where it lost. And then they, after, right after that, they passed the thing that said, we won't spend any tax money unless we vote to spend tax money. So, you know, again, the cynic in the public would look at that and say, the fix is in. These guys really, they may say they stand for taxpayers, but they don't. And, and this is why we need the United Independent Party. Uh, do you see any other big issues? I don't know if an issue can be quite as big as the Olympic uh, debate was, but what else coming up down the road are you guys going to be focusing on intensely as a party? Yeah, I mean, the Olympics is, was almost a once-in-a-lifetime kind of event, thank goodness. Hopefully. Yeah, <laughs> thank goodness. I mean, this IndyCar race coming here is, is, a, is a mini version of the same thing, but it's, it's, it represents the corruption of our system. This is the, what, Boston Grand Prix, Grand Prix Boston? Yeah. I can't remember what the... Yeah, the mayor went... Is. I mean, this is, again, it's the same thing again. The mayor went and signed a, an agreement with this uh, Grand Prix group to bring an IndyCar race to Boston in 2016, um, cost, it's going to cost taxpayers some millions of dollars, and there was no public process on it. It's the same thing, much smaller scale, but it's basically the same thing. So we keep talking about issues like that. But as always, whether it's about health care, it's about the T, whether it's about things like DCF, charter schools, we're going to keep being a voice and a group that wants to act to make sure that voters' interests are represented and hold our elected officials accountable. So if you don't get 40,000 people enrolled in the UIP by next, uh, remind me, next November, November. Mm -hmm. um, am I correct that another way you can keep ballot status is by running a statewide candidate who yep. gets 3% of the vote yep. like you did a year ago? Right. Um, do you think that you are going to run statewide again? I don't know. It's a long time from now. I mean, our, our major goals right now is we've got to get that 40,000. We've got to get that 40,000, and we're going to have some legislative candidates in 2016, and then we'll see where things are. You know, a year, interestingly in politics, a year is a long time, and uh, we've got a lot of work to do. Is it a long time, though, if you're thinking about making a gubernatorial run? I mean, you've done it. I never have. But yep. I would think that if there's even a chance that three years from now you're going to run for governor, am I wrong that you'd need to be ramping up in some way in addition to doing all the work you're trying to do to enroll yeah. people? I, I, I think you'd, you'd probably need to. I think that the way I look at this is that it, it's— if I were going to run in 2018, I wouldn't be doing anything different than what we're doing now. And if I weren't going to run, we also wouldn't be doing anything different. So it's all focused on get those enrollments, get people empowered by letting them know that if they, when they tick that box and they join the United Independent Party, that they're part of a movement to bring about this kind of change. All right. Evan Falchuk, thank you very much for, Thanks being for coming in. Enjoyed it. Pleasure. And good luck. Thank you. And that is going to do it for this week's Scrum. If you dug what you heard, you can listen to past episodes of our show on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, and on our website at wgbhnews.org scrum. If you really dug it, you can even subscribe or leave us a review. And if you've got questions, comments, book suggestions, anything you like, you can shoot them our way at scrum at wgbh.org. Our producer is Amanda McGowan. Our engineer is Alan Mattis. And I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. Thanks for listening.